Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Marian Nessel, who is Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She is also Visiting Professor of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell. Her research and writing examine scientific and socioeconomic influences on food choice and its consequences, emphasizing the role of food industry marketing. She's author of six prize-winning books. She has received many awards and honors for her excellent teaching, research, and writing. Welcome, Marion. I'm glad to be here. So I want to start with something fundamental. Um, what's the difference between food and nutrition? Uh, nutrition is about nutrients, uh, the components of food that are required for life. We need certain vitamins, minerals, uh, organic compounds, and energy in order to live, and nutrition is the science of all of that. Food is the source of nutrients, and yeah. so nutrition necessarily has to deal with food, diets, and health. Um, and these days, many other aspects, but mostly diet and health. Yeah, yeah. So... Um... In general, when we think about food, that is something that we eat, that uh, the, the GI system uh, converts that into calories. So in that context, any nutrition that is injected directly to the bloodstream, uh, you wouldn't call that food then, right? Oh, and once it's in the body, it's nutrients yeah. or, or metabolites. Um, and the whole process of digestion is set up to take food, uh, no matter what kind of food it is, no matter how complicated and how many different components it contains, and turn it into usable metabolites that will build our own structures. So it takes the structure of carrots or uh, pork or pigs and turns pigs and carrots into us. Right, right. And so how have our ideas around necessary nutrition changed over time? Um, 
what did we think maybe 20 30 years ago and what is the what is our current understanding in terms of what is required in terms of nutrition well actually nutritional requirements have been have been known since the mid 20th century yeah. um the, when the last of the vitamins were identified um but the big change has been from identifying nutrients that were required for life and prevention of nutritional deficiency diseases to diseases of overconsumption of food uh that shift occurred after the second world war and 20 or 30 years ago obesity became a big problem as people were eating more energy than they required right yeah so overabundance of food uh seems to have led to obesity i don't know the latest statistics but in the us uh, nearly one third of the population could be considered obese based on the bmi characteristics yes and two thirds are considered overweight <laughs> okay so 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 one third is considered obese and the remaining two thirds is considered overweight no 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 two thirds all together two thirds are overweight obesity okay. is overweight okay <clears throat> yeah so 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 there's so there is a difference in the bmi scale between just overweight and obese Yeah it's divided up um, the the BMI is um body mass index is a useful scale it's not totally precise uh for looking at the uh proportion of the weight is in proportion to height yeah. and there's a arbitrary cutoff of 25 for overweight and 30 for uh obesity and these are somewhat arbitrary but it's still a, i think a useful way of looking at it yeah and because, i would imagine because, it, because it, it has to do with risk the risk the risk of chronic diseases increases with increasing bmi right right and i would imagine it it is definitely different for different ethnicities and different countries and so on right Well, I think it's it depends on pop, on a lot of social characteristics in the population. Um for example, uh among Asian populations, the risk of chronic disease occurs at body weights or BMI or BMIs that are much lower than are in the United States. Yeah. um and whether this is genetic or whether this is behavioral or something that hasn't been sorted out yet. Yeah. So what do you think are the major causes of this um I guess it's uh, it has been rising for like you say after the second world war uh and it seemed to have almost exponentially going up now what do you think are the primary causes of increase in obesity in the US Oh it's uh, very simple people are eating more Um, I, mean, yeah. I mean really it's as simple as that and obesity uh rose during after the second world war but it rose very slowly yeah. the really sharp increase occurred between 1980 and and 2000 uh when the number of calories in the food supply increased by about 800 a day and people began eating about 3 or 4 or 500 calories more a day than they had prior to the yeah. 1980s and there are a number of factors that i think were responsible for that one was that food in the united states was greatly overproduced and the number of calories in the food supply rose enormously companies had to sell that 
um, and they they invented an enormous number of marketing techniques that encouraged people to eat more. And since the um, most profitable foods are often the least healthy or the yeah. most caloric. Uh, there was a big push to increase portion sizes and to find ways to get people to eat more than they had been before, and people did. And it's um, it's very easy to account for the roughly 20-pound weight gain that, that occurred on average during that period uh, for the number of calories that people were eating more of. Right. Yeah, so the, the required calorie intake uh, for a male, is it approximately 2,500 per day? Oh, that's a very rough figure. Yeah. Um, the um, it may be uh, it may be a bit higher than that, but the average figure that is used for the population as a whole is two thousand calories a day, and the American food supply provides twice that. Twice that. So we are consuming per capita basis about four thousand calories. No, no, there are 4,000 calories available in the food supply. Uh, Some of those calories will be wasted and not all of them will be consumed. Yeah. Um, but the idea that there is twice as much food available as the population actually needs right, um, right. Is a, is a, puts enormous pressure on the food industry to sell more food. Right. So what is what is actually consumed on a per capita basis, very approximately? Well, it depends on who you believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the um, the Department of Agriculture says that about one third of those calories are wasted. So that brings it down to an average of about twenty five hundred calories a day. But but it varies enormously. Yeah. Yeah. And there, I, I guess there isn't very clear data on. You know, if you, if you think about this from a physics perspective, calories in and calories out, there are multiple ways to get the calories out, maybe physical activity, exercise. But a lot of the calorie consumption is is really endemic, isn't it? 20% uh, of the calories consumed in the brain. And so what what is your understanding now? You know, how much of the calories can be taken out by mere exercising and physical activity? Well, most of the calories are consumed by what's called basal me metabolic rate. Yeah. I mean, that is the general cost of keeping your uh, heart beating and your brain functioning and blood flowing and so forth, um, kidney function, liver function, all of those. That's where most of the calories go. Um, you know, unless people are enormously physically active, uh, the average person is using, you know, 80% of the calories for housekeeping functions. And that's why it's so difficult to lose weight yeah. through physical activity. Uh, a rule of thumb is that it takes 100, it's only um, 100 calories to walk or run a mile. Well, yeah. Um, on average. So that means if you overeat four or 500 calories a day, you need to walk or run five miles in order to work that off. Most people don't do that. Right. So so the focus really has to be if you want to get a control over obesity, the focus really has to be um, at the intake of calories. Yeah, you have, to eat, you have yeah. to eat less. The easiest way to lose weight is just to eat less. Eat less, yeah, and and you know obesity obviously um, 
leads to many metabolic syndrome uh, diseases like hypertension type 2 diabetes um i can't quite remember there was some kind some hypothesis it was used to be called famine hypothesis that uh early humans um obviously had very little to eat so the system is really very finely tuned uh to expect uh, very little calories and it's it's very efficiently designed and when you start to um start to give it more calories that it can really uh, really process it all gets uh, gets into the problem of obesity right well i think that's a fair way of putting it we're we're set up so that it's very difficult to starve us to death yeah um there are all kinds of metabolic uh, compensations that occur when people don't have enough to eat uh, and the body is set up to be hungry hunger is a very unpleasant sensation and people want to do something about it when they feel hungry and the uh, it's very easy to overeat especially easy to overeat uh what are called ultra processed products which yeah. are designed to be extremely tasty are very high in calories uh and there's something about those kinds of foods uh, junk foods was the way what they used to be called yeah. um there's something about eating junk foods that really encourages people to eat a lot of them and add calories and put on weight. So right. if you're trying to lose weight, uh the first thing to do is to stop drinking sugary beverages and the second thing to do is to stop eating as many ultra processed foods. Right. What do we know from an evolutionary perspective um at, at least uh you know uh, early on maybe now 50,000 years of consumption of meat fruits nuts that is easily accessible for humans and then we had um agriculture kind of set off maybe 10,000 years ago that fundamentally changed the dietary habits uh what are the implications of you know those those types of things you know is the is the system really designed to consume agriculture based products Well it may or may not be but that's what we have right. and certainly longevity is much greater now than it was uh, <clears throat> from them the archaeological evidence it's pretty obvious that people 10,000 years ago uh weren't living nearly as long as people are living now so whatever it is we're doing we're not doing terrible things yeah. but we could eat better and we could eat health be healthier and we could avoid uh chronic diseases to the extent that we now have them if we ate real foods and not processed foods um and didn't eat quite as much as a lot of people are eating it's very very difficult to cut down on the amount that you're eating because we're used to eating a lot and there's a lot of terrific food around <laughs> right yeah and uh, on your blog um you mentioned a book uh it's entitled eat like the animals and one of the one of the things that came out of this book is that uh the body is requiring certain level of proteins and you're basically um sugar coating the protein uh to get it into the system and that's how we are getting excess carbohydrates 
Yeah, it's an interesting hypothesis, and it's a very well-written book. I'm not sure I believe it. Yeah. Uh, because uh, if you just eat food, you're going to get enough protein. People who eat enough calories get enough protein. Protein is absolutely not an issue in American diets. If anything, I mean, most people consume twice the protein they need. And it's only under conditions of great food deprivation that protein becomes an issue. Yeah. And um, we are pretty sure now that carbohydrates is the is the issue, right? Carbohydrates. Oh, I don't uh, think so. No? Oh, I would disagree with that. I think <laughs> calories. Okay. I think calories are the issue. Calories are the issue. So calories are the issue. It doesn't matter where the calories come from. Mm, okay. Um so I was under the misimpression I mean, that... No, the, let me just stop. The two issues are processing and yeah. calories. For obesity, the issues are calories and processing. Yeah. So if you're eating processed carbohydrates, that goes under the heading of processing, and you want to avoid them to the extent possible because you take in too many calories and you're encouraged to eat more than you need. But obesity is about calories. I've yet to see evidence that convinces me of anything else. Yeah, yeah. That that makes sense from a physics perspective, for sure. Uh, you know, calories in is calories in, uh, and it has to go somewhere. Um, and so, so, so what you're saying, Marion, then is if you eat natural stuff, um, it doesn't really matter if it's grains, uh, carbohydrates, uh, protein, uh, and if you eat just enough from a ca calorie intake perspective, uh, you would be doing good. You'll be solving a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, that would that would really take care of a lot of problems. And to the extent that the foods are relatively unprocessed, yeah. um, they are usually satisfying and they don't encourage people to overeat. Um, I, mean, I mean, nobody overeats salads. <laughs> lots of people, lots of people overeat hamburgers um, or drink too much sugary beverages and so forth. Um, I mean, we're we're set up to respond to these very highly processed products in a way that encourages us to take in too many calories. Right. And I don't and I don't think it matters whether it's fat or carbohydrate. Protein is pretty much the same no matter what the pro, what the fat and carbohydrate are. Um, so the big variation is in fat and carbohydrate. The healthiest populations in the world have been Mediterraneans who eat a very high proportion of calories from fat and Asians who eat a very high proportion of calories from carbohydrate. That's where the greatest longevity has been in those traditional diets. So I don't think it matters. Yeah. So from a policy perspective, do we have it right uh, in terms of the food pyramid and all of that that's out there? Well, the food pyramid isn't being used anymore and hasn't been used for quite a number of years. Um, the general dietary advice is to eat a lot of fruits, vegetables, and, and grains in relatively unprocessed form and to avoid highly processed foods that are high in salt, sugar, and saturated fat. Uh, I mean, it's mostly talking about foods, not nutrients. The new edition of the Dietary Guidelines is, is underway, and uh, they had a big meeting about it. 
and I was interested to and amused to hear that there will be very few changes from anything that's ever been said before. And in fact, dietary advice is so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I can, <laughs> can't say it better than that. Right, right. Yeah, it's the implementation of that simple idea that is often difficult. <laughs> precisely. That is precisely the problem. Right, right. And in the presence of, as you say, uh, a, a wide variety of choices in front of us, um, maybe most heavily, of them, And yeah. heavily marketed choices. And heavily marketed, heavily processed. Uh, and, and processing obviously allows us to make food in mass quantities, so on a on a per calorie basis, it reduces the cost of production. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but on the back end, obviously, um, it has negative effects on on health and other things. Yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to argue against cheap food, because cheap food means that everybody will be able to afford the calories. Um, and the nutrients they need. But there are externalized costs yeah. of cheap food uh, that are borne by the population in other ways, in poor health and in tremendous damage to the environment. So there's a trade-off between efficiency and health and efficiency and sustainability. And the COVID-19 pandemic has pointed out yeah. The, those contradictions between efficiency and sustainability and health. And we're going to have to do something to resolve some of that and maybe lose a little efficiency and get more health and more sustainability. Yeah, so, so let's uh, talk about that. Um, COVID-19, um, you have, uh, again, on the blog, observed... Uh, some some changes in lifestyle, obviously, um, people cooking more at home uh, and on the negative side, maybe they're snacking more. Uh, so there are some behavioral changes that could be that may not be uh, tactical. It might be systemic as we go forward. Uh, and then we saw a lot of logistical issues in concentrated food manufacturing. Uh, that that led to some risks in the in the supply chain. So, what do you think we have learned from COVID nineteen, and what do you think? Which aspects of you know these these changes do you think is going to be systematic, and and continuing even after the pandemic? Well, the big systematic issue has to do with efficiency. Um, the efficiency created two completely separate food systems in the United States, one for institutions and one for grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And those were so far apart and so separate that it was impossible to shift from one to the other. When everybody had to go home and all the institutions closed, restaurants closed, yeah. um, the and food service closed everywhere, there was no easy way to shift from one food supply chain to the other. Uh, and the result was that vast amounts of food were destroyed at a time when people were unemployed, out of work, and needed food to be distributed. That food could not be put into the supply chain uh, in order to feed people who needed it. I mean, that was, a, that was such a graphic problem that I'm hoping that legislators will realize that nothing like that can ever be allowed to happen again. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be a big change. Uh, I think what's happening with individual food consumption patterns depends very much on who the individuals are. Yeah. Some people are cooking more. Some people are baking. Some people are growing food. Some people are doing all kinds of things like that. Other people are just doing the best they can yeah. under very, very difficult circumstances. Yeah, so that... Uh... I would, I would like to understand the, the, the two distinct supply chains, one for institution, one for institutions, one for grocery chains. Why, why do they exist as distinct supply chains? Well, because the restaurants have to have, and food service has to have, a steady supply of vast quantities of food mm-hmm. in, or, in order to uh, make sure that they can produce whatever it is they're supposed to be producing when they produce it. And the volume is enormous, and they have had to work out uh, with specific suppliers yeah. who do nothing but supply institutions. And this means um, schools, restaurants, prisons, hospitals, any kind of institution where there's mass feeding. Um, and so separate supply chains were set up for that because it was more efficient to do that mm-hmm. and they could keep the costs low. The supply chains for grocery stores are different, and um, they evolved separately. And what this showed was that there's very little overlap and there was very little ability to go for a farmer. I mean, the meat industry was the place where this showed up the most yeah. because meat meat packing plants, there's so few meat packing plants in the United States because of efficiency they got bigger and more centralized. Um, the when there was no demand for the meat, the producers of animals killed their animals, oh, and this was while people were going hungry. It was really quite shocking. Yeah, it's interesting. So it, it seems to me that the cost per unit is what really differentiating the the, the two supply chains: cost per unit and quantity. Uh, but the starting materials are the same, right? So, so I think what you are, what you may be suggesting from a policy perspective, maybe there's an opportunity to think about this as a single system. Well, and, I think it definitely yeah. needs to be a single system, and it needs to be a much more diversified uh, system in which there are opportunities for smaller regional producers. Uh, to produce food and set up a distribution system that's more regional. Um, to have these kinds of national systems, I mean, meat, meat, small meat producers have been complaining for decades that they have no ability to slaughter their animals. In particular, the producers who are trying to produce um, animals sustainably, grazing them, and not feeding them hormones or antibiotics, um, and they have complained that they go to all this trouble to raise these animals under um, the best possible and most humane conditions. And then they have to put them into a truck and drive them for hundreds of miles to a slaughterhouse because meat has to be slaughtered under USDA approved conditions. And there are not an, and there are not local slaughterhouses. So this showed what's wrong with that. 
There have yeah. to be there has to be local and regional food production if it's going to be more resilient. And efficiency is the opposite of resiliency. And right. so there has to be less a less efficient food system if it's going to be more resilient. That's yes. going to make food yes. that's going to make food more expensive and that's a problem. It's going to make it more expensive. So, you know, that has always been the argument. The argument against local production has always been one of cost and, and reduced uh, efficiencies. But what is not in that equation is one of risk, right? So in, in the case of, a, uh, of a, you know, something like a pandemic or something else, where there's a shock to the system, uh, when you have high rigidity in the supply chain, the way that we have set it up, is going to cause us trouble. That's what we have seen in this situation, I think. Oh, I think that's a really good way of putting it, um, that risk was never in the equation. Um, you're absolutely right. And yeah, I like that way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. So it, to, to conclude this, uh, Marion, so if you were to make one or suggest one policy change um, anywhere in the, in, the, in the food and nutrition arena, uh, that could have a, a significant impact, uh, whether it's obesity, um, you know, healthcare, food safety, uh, food availability, whatever it is. What would that be? What would be the policy change that you would you would consider to be most important? I would divert support for concentrated uh, and vertically integrated. Uh, food production to more local and regional food production. Okay, okay. And so that is really increasing um, local production, um, regionalization, oh. yeah. Mm -hmm. Re-regionalize -re the food supply. Yeah, yeah. And something like that. Um, and that would make it much, that would make it much more resilient. Um, but the, um, you know, as I said, what we saw in meatpacking plants was so shocking. Um, the and the the other part of it is I think we have to pay people who are working in the food industry much better than they're being paid. Uh, the idea that the lowest paid workers in the food system were suddenly deemed essential, even though they didn't have sick leave or health care benefits, um, was also quite shocking to observe. Right. Yeah. So again, you know, from a policy perspective, I think what you are, you are saying. So. When you have centralized production, uh, very rigid supply chains, there is a risk and a cost associated with it that is not in the equation. And so if you want a more resilient system, uh, perhaps you need to, you need to tax uh, the, you know, the unseen cost and risk in some fashion and then divert that to areas that we know from a, purely from a production perspective is going to be more costly. Uh, to, to accomplish, right? So, uh, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That sounds uh, that sounds great. This has been good, uh, Marion, and I really appreciate the time that you spend with me. My and, pleasure. Uh, yeah, good luck with everything that you do. Thank you, too. Thanks so much.